You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Throughout the summer, uh, we are having the opportunity to hear some new voices from the pulpit, men in our church who have shown themselves to love the Word of God, know the Word of God, and desire to make it known. And one of those individuals that we have for us is Joshua Molden. Uh, if you don't know Joshua already, well, then you should, because he's a great guy. Um, he does prefer to go by Joshua and not Josh, which is nice because we have a lot of Joshes in this church and helps to differentiate him. Uh, Joshua has been coming to River City for about two years. And um, he is, as of last semester, he's been in our River City Institute. And he's continuing with that program, uh, which, by the way, River City Institute starts again next week. So uh, you can be praying for the students who will be part of that. And if you're interested in knowing more about River City Institute or even becoming a part of it, uh, Pastor Devin would be the one to talk to. Um, but he's not here today. So you can talk to myself or one of the pastors or one of the students who are in the program. Uh, We'd love to tell you all about it um, because it's really great. But for now, uh, it's my honor to pray for Joshua as uh, he shares the word of God with us today. So please join with me in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you for rising up your servant, Joshua. And God, I pray that you would bless his words this morning. I pray that they would be your words, and I pray you open up our hearts to hear and receive them. I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're messing around with the mic this morning, so can you hear me? Not too much? More? Ethan, can you hear me yet? Anybody? I can preach really loud, too, if that works. Is that better? A little bit? Yeah, it's on. A little louder? Hello, hello, better, better. There we go, first challenge overcome, maybe more. Well, good morning, River City, brothers and sisters. As Marty said and kind of introduced me, I'm Joshua Molden. And I was actually chatting with Josh Waite uh, earlier this week, who is the CG leader and now in the elder pipeline formally. Um, And one of the things we're talking about, because he's done this preaching cohort uh, over the summer, something we do, he's done it before. Uh, I've been studying Psalm 35 for nearly three months now, and you grow in intimacy with the text that you study. And as much as I'm preaching this today to you and for myself as well, uh, I pray that I can depart just a portion of joy that I have found from this text to you today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to raise your hand. Our strike team will come down with the Bible. Uh, We have some small print ones, and Psalm 35 will be on page 264. And the large print, if you need that yet, will be on 513. And if you don't have a Bible, this is our gift to you today. And we're not just gifting you a book, but the very words of God. So Psalm 35 is labeled as an imprecatory psalm. And for most of us here today, we do not have uh, much experience reading this type of literature. The English verb imprecate uh, means this. It means to utter a curse or invoke evil such as calamity, destruction, or God's anger and judgment against someone or something. So thus, imprecatory psalms are pieces of scripture in which the author calls down curses and calamity on people. Before jumping into the text today, I want to give three helpful pointers uh, about imprecatory psalms, and I hope this will be helpful for you guys as you study imprecatory psalms in the future, but also is going to work as a firm foundation for us to launch into the text today. So the first one, I'm indebted to Philip Yancey, who's an evangelical author. In his book, The Bible Jesus Read, he points out that imprecatory psalms 
express an appropriate righteous anger over evil and injustice. And in that way, they rightly model for us the character of God. To love what is good implies hatred towards all that is evil. The depth of love that God has for his children is matched in the depth of hate God has towards evildoers and evil. God is not someone mildly upset with the events of the Holocaust, of spousal abuse or abortion, nor is he indifferent towards disobeying parents, towards gossip and lust. Sin is perfectly hated by God, and the imprecatory psalms express an appropriate righteous anger towards this sin. Secondly, imprecatory psalms are helpful when we understand them as prayers. Now, the psalms are both songs and prayers. They are the Spirit-inspired hymnal, but they are also the Spirit-inspired prayers of the saints. The authors of imprecatory psalms have witnessed or even experienced evil, yet they don't recoil by taking vengeance into their own hands. Instead, they draw near to God, expressing their raw and unfiltered hatred towards evil and injustice. Again, Philip Yancey, in his book, The Bible Jesus Read, he quotes a theologian, a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf in his book, Inclusion, Exclusion and Embrace. And Volf says this, by placing rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face to face with a God who loves and does justice. Instead of suppressing their reaction to evil and injustice, the writers of imprecatory psalms open wide their heart of rage to God and place vengeance in his hands. I think in this way they model for us Romans 12:19 in a proper way where God says, "Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay," says the Lord. When we read imprecatory psalms, we get to be a fly on the wall as they model for us what it looks like to express an appropriate righteous anger at evil. Thirdly, the last one, when we study or read imprecatory psalms, it's important to note that these psalms were not written out of vindicativeness or a need for personal vengeance. Instead, they are prayers that keep God's justice, his sovereignty, and his protection at the forefront of our minds. You can imagine a courtroom setting. In the courtroom is where the loudest cries for justice are made in our society. David is crying out for justice to be executed on those who are guilty of slander, who are planning to innocent, who are planning to murder innocent people and ultimately seeking the destruction of God's people. Except the courtroom for David often in his life was the battlefield and not a building. David's cry for destruction of his enemies is a cry for God to punish his enemies according to the just and righteous nature of his God and our God. We must not forget that justice is not a fluffy and enjoyable topic. The reality of justice is gruesome. Just look to the cross and you shall see the most gruesome reality of justice in all of human history. So to summarize the three points, first, imprecatory psalms are helpful, or they express an appropriate righteous anger over evil and injustice. Second, uh, imprecatory psalms are helpful when we understand them as prayers. Consider yourself a fly on the wall listening in to those who rightly hate evil as they cry out to God for justice. And finally, the writers of imprecatory psalms have God's justice, sovereignty, and his protection at the forefront of their minds not personal vengeance. Now, a quick little uh, specific context on Psalm 35. Uh, the superscription tells us the psalm is of David or it's written by David, uh, but there is no clear indica indication to us of when this was written or to whom it was written. 
but clearly we see that David wrote it at a time of great anguish and distress in his life. David is being pursued by enemies who are wanting to kill him without reason, and along with this, his enemies are accusing and slandering of things that he has not done. David is living as an innocent sufferer, and we shall hear his cry for justice loud and clear as we read Psalm 35. So, with your copy of God's word, please read, please read along with me. Psalm 35, of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend against me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers and say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug, their pit, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments for his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing, like profane mockers at a feast. They gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointment altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. This is God's word for us today. So throughout Psalm 35, we see David finds himself being pursued by those who want to take his life. He has also been slandered and accused of things he knows nothing about. David is suffering at the hands of evil people, physical, real-life people. So this begs the question, what about us? I'm guessing most of us will not be able to relate to David in this way. 
Yet I do believe for most of us, evil exists as a category in our minds. But again, in this psalm, David doesn't have historical figures of the past or theoretical situations in mind. He is face to face with evil. This is not a thinking exercise for him. The evil people are right before him. So what about us? Well, David is at war with the enemies of God. And my dear brothers and sisters, so are we. Peter reminds us that we are at war with our flesh or our sinful nature in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, that the last enemy to be defeated is death. But this morning, I want to focus on a different enemy we fight against, that being Satan. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 puts it uh, this way. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And Paul goes on to talk about how we are to put on the full armor of God and fight against spiritual forces, including, and if not primarily, Satan himself. <clears throat> we must not forget that there is one who seeks to destroy your life. He wants nothing more than your destruction. Peter in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says this about Satan. Your, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now this may not be a reality we think of often. We have an enemy who delights in taking as many people as he can to hell. He delights in the eternal damnation of sinners and he delights in wickedness. And as believers, though Satan no longer has claim over us, and he cannot strip us from the hands of the Father, he still does wage war against us. Some of his tactics are to accuse us, which is a continual process as depicted in Revelation 12, verse 10. And Satan will also tempt us uh, with sin, especially to doubt uh, the very words of God is seen in Genesis 3. He will also lead us into despair and discouragement as he tempts us to doubt these promises of God. Satan is not the only enemy we wage war against, nor is he the only cause of brokenness, but he is one of our primary enemies and one of the primary sources of brokenness. When was the last time you experienced this warfare against Satan in your life? For some, it might be in your marriages as Satan tries to tear you and pitch you against one another, tear you apart. For others, it might be the battle you wage against him when he accuses you after you sin. Thus, the question must be asked, who will deliver you from Satan? Well, we may rejoice in and cling to this truth. God will deliver you. In Psalm 35, we'll see this in three ways. First, in verses 1 through 10, God delivers you from Satan who wrongfully seeks your life. Second, God delivers you from Satan who accuses you. In verses 11 through 18 and 3, God delivers you by destroying Satan. So, first off, God delivers you from Satan who wrongfully seeks your life. <laughs> right out of the gate, David expresses his deep desire for Yahweh, his faithful God, the Lord, to arm himself and fight on David's behalf. He says, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. 
David is not in a hypothetical situation. He finds himself in conflict, in a sense, if not actually, at war with the enemies, with real-life enemies. You can almost hear David's pray, David's prayer to God, crying these verses out. Fight on my behalf against my enemies. Help me, save me, O Lord. When David cries out for protection in verse 2, it carries with it the idea of having God's favor. David's soul, his innermost being, desires to hear and be assured that Yahweh, his faithful God, is his salvation. The salvation he is desiring here is specifically deliverance from his enemies who seek after his life. But there is also a sense or an aspect of this salvation that he asks for, which is an abiding assurance of that God will deliver him from all evil. Do you find yourself desperate like David? We too can ask God to gird himself as a warrior on our behalf against Satan. Now, in verses 4 through 6, we get our first real taste of the nature of imprecatory psalms. When, you're, when you read these things, does your mind or even your body tend to squirm a little bit? And in response, do you try and fluff up uh, these things that are so severe and harsh? If you do, I would warn you against this. To limit the justice and wrath of God is to limit the love and delight of God. Remember, the depth, of go- the depth of love that God has for his children is matched in the depth of hate he has towards all evil and evildoers. When we fluff up the justice and wrath of God, you must also give away the unfathomable riches and depths of his love. For to love is to perfectly hate all that is evil. Verse 4 is echoed again later in Psalm, verse 26. David's cry that his enemies be put to shame and dishonor and disappointment sums up his cry for justice. When David cries out for these things, it can be harder for us to understand what he is saying since we don't live in an honor and a shame culture. A culture in where to be accepted is synonymous with being honored and to be shamed is not just a personal experience, but a public one. When his enemies are shamed and dishonored, this will lead to a renewed intimacy with Yahweh, his covenant God, as well as a regaining of his former position of respect in the Israelite community. He understands that in order to regain an intimate relationship uh, with Yahweh and to be publicly accepted, and honored as God's rightful king, the scale must be flipped. This must happen by his enemies being justly dishonored and shamed by God. This is true for us in our cry for Satan. It is right that we ask for his dishonor and shame, for Satan is altogether dishonorable. In verses 5 through 6, David amplifies his request for the destruction of his enemies. He asks that the angel of the Lord would drive them away as the wind does with chaff, and that he would pursue them in order to assure their destruction. I put a picture up here of some chaff. Uh, In the olden days, they would take the grain and they would throw it in the air, and the chaff, the kind of worthless parts of it, would fly off in the wind. And the picture that David is painting in our minds here is he's trying to show that the enemies that he's fighting against are like chaff who are powerless and worthless. As chaff is driven in a way, uh, as chaff is driven by the power of the wind that it cannot resist, and as it is of no use, so David pleads that God would treat his enemies in this way. He also uses the imagery of the angel of the Lord pursuing them as if they are in the dark of the night on a slippery path. 
Imagine walking in the pitch black of night with a path that's ridden with maybe medium to large sized rocks that had just received rain. You can picture, I'm thinking of like the Duluth shoreline where you can walk on the rocks. Maybe it's received some dew in the morning and it's slippery. You're bound to fall and you're certainly not going to escape the pursuit of God's warrior. The picture here is that the destruction of his enemies would be sure. That's what he's crying out for from God. But why is David speaking so harshly? Well, it becomes clear as we read on in verse 7. Without cause, they are seeking David's life. Back in verse 4, we also see that these people are devising or plotting evil against David. They seek the life of David because they are evil in their very nature. Indeed, David uses the metaphor of his enemies setting up a trap for him. And it was common practice in this day and age uh, to dig a pit and to cover it uh, with some straw or some dust when hunting for wild game and trying to trap it. Uh, he's using this metaphor once again to show the unjustness of his enemies and the lengths they are going to in order to kill him. And they're trying this without having a reason. David's cry in verse 8 is a cry for God to deal out justice to his enemies who are wrongfully going to great lengths in order to kill him. <coughs> My dear brothers and sisters, David understood deeply that he was at war with an evil adversary. Do you understand this as well? The way that David cries out for God's justice to be poured out here is how we can cry out to him to pour out his justice on Satan. We may cry out, O oh Lord, condemn Satan according to your perfect, just, and righteous nature. Deliver me from his oppression. In times when you feel that, his, that this prowling lying is stalking you, maybe after you have sinned, or as you seek to share Christ with your coworkers, or as you discipline your children, you can cry out to God, expressing your hatred towards this evil adversary. And in faith, just as David did, we can expect deliverance. In verses 9 through, de 9 through 10, David is not saying, if God does these things, I will praise Yahweh. No, David is saying, when God does these things, his innermost being will rise up into exuberant praises of Yahweh, the Lord. In a commentary named Bible Commentary on the Old Testament, written by two German theologians who lived in the 1800s, Karl Frederick Kiel and Franz Dilch. They explain it this way. The bones of the body, which elsewhere are mentioned as sharing only in the anguish of the soul, are here made to share in the joy into which the anxiety that agitated even the marrow of his bones is changed. The joy which he expresses in his soul shall throb through every member of his body and multiply itself, as it were, into a choir of praiseful voices. My dear brothers and sisters, we may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Part of what this means is we can rejoice in the justice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There shall come a day in which God will consummately who will fully and completely deliver us from all evil, including Satan. This is not a matter of if, but when. On that glorious day, the very anguish of your souls that, we, that you experience as you wage war against Satan shall be turned into the loudest and most praiseful voices of God. In anticipation of that day, as we wage war against Satan, fighting against his accusations, standing for truth in love and proclaiming it, we can pray 
for God to deliver us from Satan who wrongfully seeks our life. And in faith, just as David did, we can be assured that he will. God shall deliver his people, he shall deliver you, and he shall do this because Satan wrongfully seeks your life. This brings us to point number two. God delivers you from Satan who accuses you. As we get into the next section, we start to see that the enemies of David are wrongfully accusing him. In verse 11, David expresses to God that malicious witnesses rise up and ask him of things that he knows nothing about. They are slandering him or falsely accusing him. They are repaying him evil for the good that he has done to them. And this leads David to feel bereft. He feels deep anguish as he is accused and slandered by his enemies. But what good are they repaying him evil for? In verses 13 and 14, David shows the sincerity with which he cared for these people. When they found themselves in distress, anguish, and pain, David humbled himself by afflicting himself with fasting, prayer, and lamentation. There was no deeper sympathy that he could have expressed to these people. He was mourning for them as if he had lost a close friend, a brother, or even a mother. In contrast, his enemies gathered and rejoiced at his stumbling, which is a, which is a figure of misfortune. When David says they tore at me without ceasing, it assumes that they did this with abusive and slanderous words. Like snarling dogs, they gnashed their teeth at David. Those who he had intimately cared for are now gathered, have now gathered uh, that David, or wait, lost my spot here. <laughs> uh, those who he had intimately cared for have now gathered people that David did not know in order to tear at him with their words and actions. Now hold on a second. Can you picture this? Say someone in your life is desperately sick. In response, you spend time praying for, visiting, mourning with, and even fasting for them. Then, by God's grace, whether by natural causes, uh, by medicine, or by a miracle, they're healed. Now, let's say a misfortune occurs in your life. Say your parents die, or maybe uh, you sin and you publicly repent of this sin. The next thing you know, the one whom you sincerely mourned for has gathered a group of people to mock you, accuse you, and express their hatred toward you. Would your cry not echo David's? How long, O oh Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from these ravenous beasts. I think some of you know all too well the distress and the anguish that can come from the accusation of Satan. When was the last time he accused you for not doing enough? You didn't stop and share the gospel with that person? You've proven yourself not to be a Christian. Do you really think God wants you? Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of you. I'm not saying that he always tells lies either. In fact, I think he may strive the hardest after we have sinned to accuse us. But, my brothers and sisters, listen to what God has to say about you in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And in Romans 8.1, Paul says that there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. Christ has paid for our sins on the cross. Let us not forget that we share an enemy who does accuse us. As God's children, chosen and beloved by the Father, washed by the blood of the Lamb, the accusations made against us are unfounded. Indeed, they, they are accusations made against the perfect Lamb, Jesus Christ. This does not mean we have freedom to sin. Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 6. The truth being brought out here is that Satan will accuse you. But God has delivered you from these accusations. Though these accusations shall continue till the consummation of time, Satan's accusations have no basis. They have been paid for by Christ. We can look forward with great anticipation, as David did, to a time when he will fully deliver us from the accusations of Satan. With the great congregation of God's people in a mighty throng, we shall praise him for endless days. God is the deliverer of his people. He is the deliverer of you. And he shall deliver you from the accusations of Satan. So now the third and final point today. God delivers you by destroying Satan. In these final verses, David cries out for vindication and deliverance from his enemies. Once again, we see that the enemies of David have no basis for hating him. Um, they, are, they are so evil that instead of speaking peace to those who are quiet in the land, they open wide their mouths rejoicing in the destruction of David and those who are pure. Can you picture this again? It is like a crowd of people mocking and rejoicing with mouths wide open in laughter and in joy at the destruction of the innocent. In verse 20, when David speaks of those who are quiet in the land, these are people who do not seek trouble, but instead seek to maintain proper worship of the Lord. The wicked enemies of David are quarrelsome, and they plot slanderous things against these innocent people. They will not rest until they see their destruction. Does this not sound like Satan? Remember 1 Peter 5.8, Satan prowls around like a lion, seeking for someone to devour. He is always on the hunt, and he is always seeking to kill and destroy. As Revelation 12.10 tells us, Satan accuses the brothers or believers day and night before God. So in what manner will God deliver us from Satan? Verses 22 through 25 tell us. David cries out to the all-knowing, the all-powerful, and the all-seeing God to vindicate him. Throughout this psalm, David has asked God to take up his cause, to fight for him, and to save him. And when David cries out for vindication here, it is the heart of all of these requests. requests. The cry for vindication includes the destruction of his enemies. Devin Hiller, one of our loving shepherds here, says it this way. For David, salvation from his enemies includes the destruction of his enemies. So too is it for us. David wraps up his prayer and his song to God, asking that God would justly put to shame, dishonor, and disappointment those who rejoice in his calamity and magnify themselves against him. The picture is of 
those who are evil, they only rejoice in evil, particularly the calamity and the misfortune of the righteous. Now the flip side of this prayer is that God would exalt those who rejoice in what is good. Verse 27 is not so much about the righteousness of David as much as it is about God being magnified for saving and exalting those who rejoice in what is good and what is right. God's justice and deliverance shall lead to the endless praises of his name. In accordance with the justice and the holiness of our God, he will completely and utterly destroy Satan. If you want a glimpse of what this is going to look like, I'd encourage you to read the book of Revelation. It took me about 30 to 45 minutes to do it. But let me take some time to give you a glimpse of the, assured, the assurance that we have that Satan will be destroyed. In Revelation 12, 10 through 11, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. In our scripture reading for today, Revelation 15, 1 through 6, 7, all those who had conquered the beast and its image and the, and the number of them were gathered, praising God for his justice and his wrath. They say, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Yes, Lord, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The people of God are seen, pray, are seen praising God for pouring out his justice and his wrath on Satan, destroying him along with all those who belong to him. And Revelation 19, 19 through 21 says this, And I saw Satan and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And Satan was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its present had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of Satan and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Who was it sitting on this horse? My brothers and sisters, it was the king of righteousness, the king of glory and the prince of peace, the warrior and savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to the preceding verses in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written, on, written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of, of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp, sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. My dear brothers and sisters, again, who is it that shall deliver us from Satan? It is our beloved King and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is him who is called faithful and true. We shall eternally sing the praises of his name 
with the whole of God's people is seen in Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To wrap it up, R.C. Sproul says this, no one ever suffers injustice in the vertical plane. We either receive the justice of God for being unrepentant sinners or the unfathomable riches of his mercy. The only reason we can so confidently hope in the justice of God is not because we are righteous, but because there is one greater than David who came and lived as the innocent sufferer. Scripture says that he humbled himself, taking on the flesh of man. He came so that he might seek and save the lost. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Indeed, they rejected him. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. Don't you see the innocence of Christ? If David's life was wrongfully sought after, even more so was Christ. From the fall of man, Satan pursued the line in which Christ would come. Under the edict of Herod, who sought to kill all babies born as males, to the hatred of the Pharisees, towards Christ who multiple times sought his life to the evil and wicked men who crucified Christ. Indeed, Jesus, in John 15, 20, 25, quotes Psalm 35, 19, reminding his disciples that they too would be hated without reason because he first was hated without reason. He became the curse on our behalf so that we might receive mercy from God and not God's just wrath. If David was wrongfully accused by malicious witnesses, even more so was Christ. Do you recall Jesus' trial before the high priests, the elders, and the scribes? Mark in Mark 14 55 through 6 says this, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Jesus would go on to be mocked, slandered, abused, tortured, and as the scriptures say, forsaken by God. His blood was spilled. There is not a more gruesome reality of justice and wrath than the cross on which Christ died. And yet, the story does not end there. After drinking the full cup of God's wrath, Christ died and he was raised on the third day we can have full assurance that we will be delivered by God from Satan because Christ bore the accusations of Satan on the cross. By repenting of our sin and placing our faith in Christ, Jesus Christ has delivered us from the penalty of sin, namely, or primarily, the wrath of God himself. Because of this, we have full assurance that Christ will deliver us from all sin and evil, including Satan. For Paul says this in Romans 8.32. This was the benediction last week. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. All things 
includes deliverance from Satan. What a glorious day that shall be and what joy we have even now. Pray with me. Father, you are holy and a just God. There was no way for man and therefore you sent your son. Lord, we thank you for sending your son Jesus that we might receive the great mercy of you. We pray that we would never grow weary of doing good, that we would never forget the rich mercy that you have given to us, saving us from the very wrath we deserve. God, just as David was assured that he will be delivered from these enemies, pray that we would know and have the same assurance the enemies of God will not stand in the day of judgment. We have been delivered from the penalty of sin through Christ's blood, and may we now live in the grace in which we now stand. And may we look forward to that great day when Christ returns and he fully and completely destroys all evil so that there will be no more tears no more pain, no more suffering. God, help us now in our weaknesses. Help us cling to this hope and learn to rejoice even as we are hated as Christ said we would. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.